I'd like to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 18. 8 through 18. Let's hear God's word together. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that you are our protector and refuge, that in all the twists and turns and adversities of life, Lord, you are our shield. You watch over us and guide us through this life. Father, we pray that you would give us a robust confidence in your faithfulness, a confidence, Lord, that would express itself in courageous, bold living for you. Grant us, as Paul admonishes Timothy, not to be ashamed of the gospel but to stand firm in our witness to it and living out its implications for the glory of your name. Father, we pray that you would use your word today to engender confidence in the gospel and fidelity to you. Amen. Suppose that There were a handful of relatively new believers entrusted to your oversight, your care. Uh, They they don't know much about the Christian life. They don't know much about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And you have to help them grow in the Lord. Uh, They know enough to be saved. They're Christians, but not much beyond that. So what do you say to these comparatively new believers? What instruction would you consider to be instruction of first importance? Well, intriguingly, if we go to the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 32, uh, the apostle Paul, speaking to recently converted Christians, uh, communicates to them this, that they 
through many tribulations, he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You need to know this at the outset of the Christian life. It is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, there will frequently be opposition and difficulty that comes your way. And you should know that and be ready for that. And there was a tremendous cost that you had to pay in the ancient world if you became a Christian. Uh, to become a Christian means that, in the context of the ancient world, you repudiated the worship of pagan gods and idolatry. And the worship of pagan gods and idolatry was bound up with every aspect of social life. So to be a Christian means that from the outset you're sort of ostracized, out of step with the rest of society because you won't prostrate yourself before pagan deities. To become a Christian, to confess Christ in the ancient world, means that you are on the periphery of things. It also means that, and it meant that you confess a message that was by ancient standards irrational and absurd. The Son of God, the King, is crucified for his enemies that he might bring them life. It's victory through weakness. And of course, the ancient world, much like our world, valued strength. To hold on to this message, to confess it, would be to put yourself at odds with the values of the prevailing society. There was a tremendous cost, therefore, to becoming a Christian. And their challenge, the challenges that they faced in the first century, uh, continues to be the challenge that we face even today. The challenge of being faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ in a hostile society and culture. And the, and the pressing question for us is, how is it that we can find the strength and courage to be faithful to our Lord even when the world around us is antagonistic to Christ and his message? Where do we find the strength to be faithful? And we learn from what Paul says to Timothy where it is that we find that strength. Uh, if you recall from what was said last week, this is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, he, his death is imminent. And he is preparing Timothy for life without him. And he is letting Timothy know that a basic responsibility that he has as a leader in the church is to suffer for the gospel, to stand firm in it. And in his instructions in this passage, we see where the strength to be courageous comes from. So we'll note two things this morning. Number one, the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. The temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. And number two where we find the strength to suffer for the gospel, where we find the strength to suffer for the gospel. Note, notice uh, Paul's admonition to Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Uh, the implication is, <clears throat> excuse me, the implication is that shame will be a, a, a temptation for Timothy and by extension us. To be ashamed is to be embarrassed by the truth claims of the gospel. It is to uh, lack confidence and thereby compromise. It is to be silent when you should speak. It is to hesitate when you should act. That's a temptation for God's people, to be ashamed of the gospel, to be embarrassed, to be silenced by pressure and opposition from the world. 
Now, why does this temptation exist? Why does this pressure exist? And the reason it exists is there is a basic incompatibility between the values of the world and the truth of the gospel. These two things are opposed to each other. They are in conflict with each other. As I noted, in the world, uh, strength, prestige, dominance over others is valued, but the gospel teaches that the king is crucified for his enemies. The king suffers, and in suffering brings redemption to his enemies and those who oppose him. The world tells us that we're all fine the way that we are, and the only thing we really need is to be accepted for what we are. You know what the gospel says? The gospel says that you're so polluted, so corrupt, so guilty, so warped and deformed by your rebellion against God that nothing less than the death of the sinless Son of God is sufficient to make you right again. It's that bad. That's the truth about you. Nothing less than the death of Jesus can take away your sins and make you right. That's how bad it is. And yet... That's how good God is. But the gospel is an assault on this idea that we're basically fine. We are not fine. And we're so far gone that we can't put it right. God must intervene. The world calls us to a life of self-fulfillment and self-focus. It's about me. It's about squeezing out maximum pleasure for myself in this life. Whereas the gospel says that, yes, Jesus is our Savior who takes away our sins and reconciles us to God, but Jesus is also Lord, King of kings. And to submit to him as our Savior also means submitting to him as our Lord and following his direction. Life is not about you and your desires and your plans and purposes. It is about living for King Jesus. So there is an antagonism between what the world values and deems to be true and what the gospel says is true. And that means that when we testify to the truth of the gospel and live out the truth of the gospel, we should expect opposition, pressure, pushback, ostracism, and even persecution. It comes with the territory. So Paul told those new believers. Now some of us are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel because we want to be accepted. This is many of us. Uh, we don't want to be outsiders. We don't want to be pegged as bigots, as narrow-minded fanatics. We want to be on the inside. We want people to like us and approve us. We especially, some of us, want to be part of that glorious inner circle of the powerful, the influential you know, those with prestige, we want to be part of those circles. You know what it's like to have lunch with a group of people that you desperately want to belong to and bask in the glow of their acceptance, and you'd rather have a root canal than do anything that would alienate you from this group and from their acceptance. That lust for human approval can cause us to be ashamed of the gospel when being faithful to the gospel means losing that affirmation. If you're going to be faithful to Jesus, though, you have to be willing to pay the price. Lewis captures this well, C.S. Uh, Lewis, in uh, That Hideous Strength. There's a character, Mark Studdick. Whatever else he wants, he wants to be part of that inner circle where the powerful are, where the distinguished are. And here's what Lewis writes about Mark. 
This was the first thing Mark had been asked to do, which he himself, before he did it, clearly knew to be criminal. But the moment of his consent almost escaped his notice. Certainly there was no struggle, no sense of turning a corner. It all slipped past in a chatter of laughter, of that intimate laughter between fellow professionals, which of all earthly powers is strongest to make men do very bad things before they are yet individually very bad men. We know what that is. You're surrounded by people you respect. You want to protect their respect for you. And so you keep your mouth closed. You compromise. Following Jesus means being willing for his sake to suffer the loss of the world's admiration and approval. I think it's Doug Wilson who says, you're not prepared to do any good for the kingdom until you can give the world's approval the raspberry. Right? <laughs> When that's your attitude, you can do some real good. Uh, now, others of us may be less intimidated by human approval and its loss, and we're more concerned about maintaining the status quo. We like our lives, we're comfortable, and so we don't want to do anything that would compromise our paycheck, for example, or opportunities to be promoted at work. And so it's the desire to maintain that domestic bliss that silences us, that causes us to be embarrassed by the gospel. But whatever it is, we should understand, whatever particular form the temptation uh, takes for you, you should understand that that is, in fact, a temptation. Uh, you are tempted to shrink back from publicly identifying with Jesus and living out the truth. And faithfulness means identifying with him. And it includes also not being ashamed of those who suffer for the gospel. This is intriguing, isn't it? Uh, on the one hand, Timothy is not to be ashamed of the gospel, which is here described as the testimony about our Lord, but neither is he to be ashamed of Paul. Now, th this is a pressing admonition for Paul because many fellow believers in Asia, second half of modern, you know, the western part, western half of modern day Turkey, many believers in Turkey have distanced themselves from Paul because of his imprisonment. There's an example of this in verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. And this will be further developed in the letter. Not only is Paul at the end of his life, but many believers who should have been standing with him and supporting him have backed away from him. They're ashamed of his chains. And so he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. To not be ashamed of the gospel also means not being ashamed of those who suffer for the gospel. Those who, because of their faithful witness to Jesus Christ, suffer. Uh, we should celebrate those individuals, come alongside of them, not distance our, ourselves from them. And this is a temptation. Someone is perhaps more faithful th than you are in their witness to Christ and the temptation is to take a step back and say, oh, they're being fanatical. I'm a Christian too, but I'm a more sophisticated, perhaps, <laughs> Christian. Uh, courage means courage and allegiance to the message, but also a loyalty to and solidarity with those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. So negatively, Timothy, and by extension us, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be embarrassed of this message. Bear witness to it. Live it out. That's the negative side of the coin. Don't do that. Positively, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
Now, in the first instance, this applies to Timothy as a leader in the church. Uh, as he preaches the gospel, defends it, lives it out, he is going to experience opposition from the world. And he needs to be okay with that. He needs to accept suffering in his service to Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. But by extension, this applies to us. Remember what we read from Acts. Those who, uh, those who walk in fellowship with Jesus will enter the kingdom of heaven through many tribulations. That's all believers. And Paul will go, go on to say in 2 Timothy 3, 12, this very letter, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Faithfulness to Jesus means being okay with and accepting opposition from the world because you're faithful to him. Publicly identifying with him, bearing witness to the truth, living out that truth, and accepting the pushback from the world. A readiness to experience suffering for, for the gospel is what faithfulness to Jesus looks like in a world that hates him. Luke 9, 26 uh, says, Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father. Following Jesus means identifying with him, bearing witness to him, and being willing to, to pay the price that comes with that. So the question then is, where do we find the strength to do this? Where do we find the courage to be able to accept rejection by people and opposition from the world? Paul shows Timothy, and by extension us, where we find this strength. And the first thing to notice is that we find it in the power of God, verse 8. Notice Paul doesn't simply say to Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel. If you think about it, that would be kind of a bleak statement by itself. Share in suffering for the gospel. He says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Where do we find the strength? There, in God's power. God doesn't say, though we often assume, I've got, I've got to sort of clench my teeth and I've got to be strong and courageous and dig deep and find the resources within to endure pushback from the world and the, the loss of relationship. That's not what God's word says. Endure suffering by the power of God. The supernatural power of God strengthens his people to be faithful in the face of opposition and persecution. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 1, is operative in the lives of believers to harden them and strengthen them in the face of the world's persecution and opposition. That's where our strength comes from. When you read the accounts of the great martyrs of the faith in the past who exhibited a kind of superhuman courage and boldness in the face of persecution, we need to understand the source of that superhuman courage and strength. And the source was the supernatural power of God. And that same power is available for believers today. So God is the one who bestows this power, but he bestows it, no, through the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, God gave us a spirit, and I take the reference to spirit here to be not a, the human spirit, but the Holy Spirit. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul will then go on and command Timothy to guard the good deposit or the gospel that has been entrusted to him. He is to contend for the truth about Jesus. But how is he to do it, verse 14? By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. If you're a believer in Jesus, 
you're trusting in him as your savior, then God the Holy Spirit indwells you. That means that your life is not just lived in your own natural strength. It is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. We don't consider that as often as we should. To be a Christian is to have God the Holy Spirit and therefore also the Father and the Son dwelling inside of you. And that means in the face of opposition, we have power from God the Holy Spirit to be faithful. Recognizing that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and empowers us should embolden us. We're not facing these challenges alone. The Holy Spirit is himself enabling us to face the challenges. And where you believe that, that's going to produce confidence. You are going to act boldly and speak boldly, knowing that God the Holy Spirit is himself strengthening you. And when you act boldly and speak boldly, you discover that God the Holy Spirit does indeed empower you. The result is confidence and boldness for Jesus. Unbelief looks at what's possible with human resources and says it can't be done. Faith looks at God and says, because of who he is, it can be done. Unbelief looks at a crowd of 5,000 hungry people and sees five loaves and two fish and says, there's no way that we can take these scant resources and feed this many people. But faith looks at Jesus and the power of Jesus to multiply that bread and those fish and says it can be done. Those who understand that God the Holy Spirit dwells within them should be bold in their witness. And as they step out in faith and speak and act courageously, they discover the supernatural power of God through the Holy Spirit. That's where our strength and courage comes from. So where do we find the strength? We find the strength in the power of God given to us through the Holy Spirit. Secondly, where do we find the strength? Through the great promises of the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, and no sooner does Paul mention the gospel, then he begins to expound the gospel in verses 9 and 10. And this exposition of the gospel is simultaneously an expression of praise, but also an encouragement to Timothy and to us. Where do we find the strength? We find it in the work of Jesus. So we're told in verse 9 that salvation the salvation that God has brought to us is not something that we've accomplished. It's something that has been given to us by grace. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. There is that glorious New Testament Pauline reformational affirmation. Or glorious gospel negation. God has shown up and he's saved us. He has washed us of our guilt and sin. He has opened his arms to us wide as our father and welcomed us as his children. He has made us a promise that we will one day be raised from the grave and experience resurrection life in the world to come. And he has done all of this, not at all because of anything that we have done. Our good works have contributed nothing to our salvation. Our generosity to the poor, our prayers, 
a thousand other good things that we can name. None of these things, none of these things have contributed anything to our salvation. We are saved not because of any good thing that we do, but positively because of his own purpose and grace. We're we're saved because God is that kind of God. We're saved because God is a God of undeserved, unmerited goodness. And out of that grace, the Father sent the Son to purchase our salvation, a salvation that he freely offers to us as a gift. And we receive that gift by faith. But note carefully, our faith isn't a work that merits salvation. It's not that we believe and then God rewards us for our belief with salvation. No, think of faith as an empty hand that receives a present. The empty hand doesn't earn the present, it receives the gift of God. And faith is simply a way of receiving what God freely bestows upon us, namely salvation. So we want to emphatically say that God saves sinners, not because of any good in them, but entirely because of his undeserved goodness, because of his grace. Now, when you believe that, that that truth should be tremendously liberating. It means that your relationship with God, his love for you and his acceptance of you is not grounded in your performance. It is grounded in his gracious character and the work of Jesus. And that means, if you've had a rough week like I've had, full of irritability, lack of contentment, frustration, uh, even on, on the other side of weeks like that, The Father loves you no less than on your best weeks. He loves and accepts you just as much on your worst day as on your best day. And when you believe that, his love for you and acceptance of you is a firm foundation for life, then that frees your heart to obey him, not out of fear, not constantly to perform, to rest a blessing from God's hand that he's reluctant to give. But it frees us to obey out of joy and gratitude. We don't have to worry that we have to gain his acceptance. We know we have his acceptance. And out of delight, we obey. Imagine for a moment that you have two boys, both soccer players, and uh, one young man knows that he is loved by his dad. And when he steps onto the soccer field, he's not playing the game and seeking to score goals because he's trying to get dad to love me and think well of me. He is confident about the father's love, so he plays the game with joy and with freedom. And whether he wins or loses, he's not crushed by his loss because he's confident in the father's love. And that frees him to to score goals just for the joy of the game. But imagine for a moment that that second son that second boy, steps onto the soccer field uncertain of the father's love, insecure. What does dad think about me? And so he's eager to score goals and he's eager to perform well uh, out of a desire to, to win over the father. Now, if he plays soccer from, with that motivation, what is his soccer playing going to be like? He'll probably work hard at it, but it'll be a sort of grim determined, joyless soccer playing. He's not playing the game for the joy of the game. He's playing the game because he's got to win over dad and get, get dad's approval. And if he loses, he's utterly crushed. 
because he, has he hasn't accomplished it. Like that captures the difference between obedience grounded in a firm conviction that God loves me and is for me. Where I believe that, obedience is a matter of joy and freedom. And where I am insecure about the Father's love, I, I strive to perform so I can win him over. And the quality of obedience is not the same. Why should we be firm and loyal to Christ, not ashamed of the gospel, but being willing to suffer for it? Well, we, we don't do this out of fear fundamentally. If I don't do it, God will get me. No, we are not ashamed of the gospel, ready to suffer it, uh, suffer for it because we know that we are loved and accepted by God. And his love and acceptance frees us from needing the acceptance of the world. And therefore, we confess him boldly and without fear. God saves sinners by grace, not because of their works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And notice, what is the starting point, the beginning of God's grace? Which he gave us in Christ Jesus, good, God's grace was uh, manifest in Jesus, when? Before the ages began. How far back does the undeserved goodness of God go? Uh, it goes all the way back. It goes back to before the creation of the world. It goes back into eternity past. There was never a time when God was not gracious to his people. God had always purposed to deliver a people for himself through Jesus by sheer grace. The grace of God goes all the way back into eternity past, but then it is manifest in history in the coming of Jesus Christ. which he gave us, that is grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested, this grace that goes into eternity past, has now been manifested in history through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus. Uh, and this is typical of Paul. God has eternally committed himself to redeeming a people, and that eternal plan is realized in history through the Son. And what has the Son accomplished? He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When he writes he, he abolished death, Paul means that the, the guilt of sin that makes death a terror has been taken away. Uh, the, very famously, Hamlet in Shakespeare's famous, famous play, Hamlet, talks about what dreams may come as he contemplates the prospect of death. It's one thing to die, but what nightmares lie on the other side? And according to Scripture, there is a death behind the death. What makes death terrible is the reality of divine judgment on sin. To die in your sins without your guilt being taken away and to stand before a holy God in your guilt is truly a terrible prospect. And that's what makes death so horrible. But to say that Christ abolished death means that he has taken away the guilt of sins. When Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave, never to die again, th that resurrection means that our sin and guilt has been taken away forever, those who believe in Jesus. Our debt has been paid in full, and so on the other side of death, there is no judgment or condemnation. There is only divine acceptance. That's one aspect of this abolishing of death. But the other aspect is, 
death doesn't have the last word. For the believer, death is the passageway to life. Through his resurrection, our Lord Jesus Christ has brought life and immortality to light. There's a better world coming. Life in this present age isn't worth comparing to the life of the world to come. There will be no death. We won't grow old. There will be no more decay. And there will be unmediated, unmitigated communion with the Lord. That's the world that we look forward to. Because of Jesus' resurrection, it's not just that God will accept us, it's that on the other side of death, all things will be made new. Death for the believer is not the end, it's the beginning. Now, if you believe that, that there is a better world coming, that the suffering of this present life is short and passing, will that strengthen you to be bold? Will that strengthen you to be courageous in bearing witness to Jesus and living out the truth of the gospel? Absolutely. Where we understand that a resurrection is coming, where we have that hope firmly in our minds and hearts, we are going to be confident and bold in our witness to Christ. The, the challenges of this life, the persecution, the oppression we might experience is fleeting and there's a better life coming. And so that strengthens us. And finally, where do we find the courage, the strength to be faithful to Jesus in the face of opposition? We find it in the faithfulness of God to his people. God will cause his people to persevere. Uh, look at verse 12. Uh, notice what the Apostle Paul says here. I am convinced that he, and, and Paul is using himself as an example for, to Timothy here, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, in the ESV, God is the one who has entrusted something to Paul, right? In the NIV, however, different translation of the Bible, 2 Timothy 1.12, it is Paul who entrusts something to God. He writes, yet this, this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard, that is, God is able to guard, what I have entrusted to him until that day. And the underlying Greek text is uh, ambiguous on this point. It says, and I am fully convinced that he is able to guard my deposit until that day. Is it that God has given Paul a deposit or Paul has given God a deposit? In this instance, I think the NIV is actually correct. I think it makes better sense in the context. The idea is that Paul has entrusted himself and his life to God. And he is saying that God will guard the apostle Paul until that day, until that final day. As he contemplates his death, as he looks around at all the believers who have abandoned him in his hour of distress, Paul is nevertheless confident. And the reason he is confident is because he knows that the Lord who saved him by grace will keep him until that final day. His faithfulness will not waver or fail. Paul has entrusted himself to God, and God will certainly keep him until the very end. So what is Paul's source of confidence? What enables him to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Just this, God will keep him. God will hold him fast. 
His confidence is not that he knows what will or will not happen to him. That's not our confidence either. We don't know what we will be called to suffer or not. Our confidence is that our Lord is faithful and he will bring us safely through the storms of life to the other side. He will keep us. He will never forsake us. He will be with us to the end. Now, if you believe that, you're going to be confident. If you believe that nothing can happen to you that can finally separate you from God or take away your salvation, that's going to produce a certain boldness. You don't know how life is going to develop and shake out, but you do know whatever comes your way, the Lord will be there strengthening you and he'll take you safely home. And where that conviction uh, obtains, where that confidence exists in our hearts, we will be able to be bold for Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your unflinching faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, that we would not look at our circumstances and the challenges that we may or may not face, but we would look steadily at you, draw strength from you to be faithful to the end. Amen.